Welcome to the CFB Paint Podcast. We aren't Photoshop, we're not Illustrator. We're your bare bones essentials college football podcast, giving you the pixelated, crudely edited coverage you need for the preseason, midweek, and off-season doldrums while you wait for the action on Saturdays. You've got Court, Steve, Mark, and Brian, four brothers, college football fans with decades of heartbreak and a few years of ecstasy, here to guide you through your own gridiron roller coaster with all the side drama along the way. Welcome to the CFB Paint Podcast. Wow, what a weekend. We're going to do our rapid round in the order of total pizza consumed in your lifetime. Now, in order to fairly handicap this, I wonder if we cap it at, Brian, how old are you now? Are you 27? Uh, is that right? 27. Okay. So your first 27 years of life, how much pizza do we all think we've consumed? Um, and we're going to go from least to most. Um and I think I've got a pretty good argument as the most because I worked at several different pizza joints and every single meal that I got for free was pizza. Um, and I, I lived the very typical bachelor lifestyle in college where it was, if it wasn't a Totino's pizza that was in my freezer, it was definitely the Little Caesars down the street. So there is me staking my claim for the most pizza consumed in the first 27 years, but I'll entertain other arguments. Let's hear it. Not going to get an argument out of me. I, I do subscribe to the philosophy that every pizza is a personal pizza as long as you believe in yourself. And so I, I get basically a double serving of pizza every time I eat pizza, but uh, there's no way I ate more pizza from the six or four years you had at a pizza joint. I think there's an okay chance that I, I take third. Um, last place seems most natural. I am the most slight of frame of all the brothers. But also I have the advantage of being the youngest, meaning our parents had the most money by the time I was leaving high school. We were having pizza more frequently than anyone else. And also I think Corey stands a little bit disadvantaged because Steven has these jobs at It's a Pizza and Red Elephant, Red Elephant Pizza and, and Grill. I have more it's years of that because- there too, yeah. I, I have more years of that because- Stephen is younger than Corey. So a couple more years of Stephen bringing that back or us having a little bit better of a discount. So I, even though I may not be on an individual meal basis able to consume at the same rate as the rest of you, I think that at least takes me off the bottom floor for, for this particular competition. Although to be fair, I also got married very young at 22 and I have a wife who loves to cook. So perhaps 22 to 25, I may have consumed less pizza than, than the rest of you. Yeah, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. Although I was with the family less when Steve had his job and my and when the family had less money. Um, when I was in college, I probably at least every week went to go to Little Caesars, if not multiple times a week. Um, and I, I subscribe to Mark's theory. If you have a pizza, it's a personal pizza, no matter what. Um, you can, if, as long as you believe in yourself. Um, with my wife, our first, one of our first dates... I took her to a pizza place and had her, we had a pizza eating contest and she actually put up a fight, but I mean, after one pizza, she was done and I finished two or three. Um, and then I'll sit there and say at home, when we buy pizza, we buy enough for there to be dinner, second dinner, lunch, and next dinner for me. She gets none of that. So <laughs> I, I actually have a background at my work that says, um, has a big picture of of a fat Michelangelo and says pizza ruined my life. And that's kind of where I stand around right now in my life. 
Yeah, I think I feel pretty comfortable saying the order from most to least would be Steve, Corey, me, then Brian. I have gone to Corey's house and we've had dinner and then 11 o'clock's rolled around and we're like, we could really get some dominoes right now. And then we'll both eat another pizza. I don't know how often that happens when I'm not at his house, but I'll, I'll vouch for Corey. And, and then on top of that, I served my mission in the United States. For you guys that didn't, we get pizza all the time as missionaries. At the United. So, so you know how it's like. No, that's, that's totally true. I, I think I'm willing, with the given explanations, I'm willing to cede my spot as last place. Um, just one quick thing I want to uh, touch in on. We all went to the same middle school. Was the honor roll uh, reward for getting straight A's each nine weeks the same for all of you that you go to CC's Pizza? Because that was always a contest to see who could put down the most between all the kids who got straight A's. And I just hadn't thought about that in a super long time until, until this conversation got brought up. I'll have you know you're talking to someone who only made the AB honor roll. So ice cream sandwiches for an hour, like one Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, Steve's, Steve's trials were different than ours, Brian. We didn't do the pizza eating contest. We were, you know, how many shakes of Parmesan cheese can you get in somebody else's diet cook before they notice? <laughs> they didn't have that when I was there. Um, but what Brian may not remember is the uh, personal pan pizza rewards for reading enough books at Pizza Hut. Ooh, yeah. I love. This podcast used to be about football. <laughs> anyway, I think I think that settles it. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead in that order. So, Brian, you're up first. Where do you want to start? Rapid round. Let's start with we're going to have a phenomenal playoff this year. Going into the season, I thought potentially it's bleak. We'll see. You know, hopefully there's a three-team race and so there's at least one exciting game in the playoff. Um, those three teams in my head being Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. Now we look at what UCLA is doing. We look at Michigan. We look at Tennessee. I think regardless who gets into this, this four-team playoff, it's going to be amazing. I'm really excited for, for the postseason and the, the lack of formality of, okay, we've got to have these two people blow out other teams so that way we know for sure that they're the best two so they can play each other. I think there's going to be real mystery going in this next one. So I'm very excited about that. The other thing uh, I want to touch on at the top of the show is looking at the top of the rankings, the top six, you you can argue their order, but I feel like they're right. Um, They're, they're the six teams that are the best uh, in the league or in the league, in the NCAA. And then number seven, you have Ole Miss. Um, I wonder if that ranking is just a tad fraudulent, um, and that's kind of a harsh term, but Ole Miss uh, wins over Troy, Central Arkansas, Georgia Tech, Tulsa, Kentucky, which is a good team, Vanderbilt, and Auburn. Giving up 27 points to Tulsa, 28 points to Vanderbilt, 34 points to Auburn. And Kentucky's not a great great team to beat, and they beat them 22-19. I think this might be the most fraudulent team in the top 10. We'll see. They've got LSU coming up this next week. Um, but I think starting at, at number seven in the rankings is where things start to get kind of interesting and, and dubious again. But I think for this week, we've got at least the top six. Like those teams are are pretty solidified. Those are the best teams out there. And the order, I understand, you could you can argue in a lot of ways. Brian, for for your rapid round or for my rapid round, I'll just piggyback off some of the things you said uh, to start. Number one, the hopes for, uh, well, not the hopes necessarily, but I made a, a bold prediction at the beginning of the season that we might have three SEC teams in the college football playoff. 
And I'm feeling okay about that prediction. Again, you could see Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama all slide in. Alabama can't lose again. They've got to go win the SEC title. That's the one caveat, and I think that's the biggest risk to this whole thing. I think there's a really good chance that Tennessee and Georgia go undefeated into their game later this year. One of them takes a loss, doesn't have to play in the SEC title game, and gets punched through. Uh, the other one goes undefeated into the SEC title game, loses to Alabama, and they get punched through. So that I think that that's a real possibility that's still alive. Um, I do feel like we're starting to understand who teams are and who they're not. Uh, which you would hope that seven games of the season, but the last three weeks have been so action packed. I mean, we'll take a, uh, the ACC by itself over the last three weeks. You've had Wake Forest play NC state, NC state play Clemson, Wake Forest play Clemson, Florida state play all three. The ACC's kind of sorted out uh, through there. I mean, if you look at Alabama played last three weeks, Alabama played Arkansas. Um, they played, Oh shoot. Who'd they have last week uh, or two weeks ago? Um, escaping Sam. me. Yeah, Texas A&M, who, while not a great team this year, still provides, I think, a, a challenge each given week. They played Tennessee. The last three weeks have been so packed, you're starting to see them sort themselves, which is kind of what you alluded to, that you know we, we now feel comfortable about the top. I don't know how good Clemson is, frankly. I don't feel like they've really played a great team yet, um, but you don't have a reason to drop them any lower in the rankings. They've done, you know, they've done their job, which is win football games. Uh, the last thing I'll add... Uh, as my takeaway this week, I, I, you know, every other week provide a commentary on jerseys and I'm prepared to do that again today. Uh, best jerseys of the week, either go to BYU or Utah. Those helmets were sick. I don't think I've ever seen anything like them uh, with, you know, D or with like artwork on the helmets. Uh, worst by far, PCU. I'm surprised they're even allowed to wear dark grays with dark red numbers and purple. Uh, the dark, you can't see any of the numbers. It's very challenging, and they look terrible. Who who approved those? Um, I, I honestly agree with you guys on, on kind of this rapid round. I think we have a, a top six. You mentioned your top – or you mentioned that there is a top six. I, I just want to make sure we agree on this. Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, Michigan, Tennessee. Who do you have as your sixth? Clemson? I say Clemson. Um, Clemson over – UCLA would be the other contender in, in my mind. Um Still TBD on that. They've got some more proving to do, but up to this point, resume-wise and, and what we've seen, that would be be my my six would be Clemson. But you could, I, I hear an argument for UCLA. Yeah, uh, one of the things I've seen actually through I was going through and looking some through some numbers. If you look at like S and P Plus or kind of like the FBI, if you, there's a um, a thing done by Bill Conley that kind of composites all those. You want to know his number of six team is Texas. And it's not close between him and Clemson. He has Texas, like, at the composite, like, they do a ranking. I'll give you numbers. It's 33.7 to Ohio State, 31.7 to Georgia, 29.5 to Alabama, 24.3 to Michigan, 22.5 to Tennessee, 22.4 to Texas, and then 18.4. So you see a, a good starting three with Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, even despite the loss. And then you see the next three, Michigan, Tennessee, and Texas, and then it drops down into those people. So – you say there's a lot of good teams, in, or you say there's a set six. I think there's more than that. I think you're going to have some teams crying that they didn't get in this year. You potentially have a one-loss Ohio State, a one-loss Tennessee or Georgia, or a one-loss or, or one Alabama that won the SEC. Who knows? I mean, um, and then you have potentially an undefeated Clemson and potentially a one-loss uh, one uh, Pac-12 winner with Utah or, or UCLA or USC. I'm throwing names out there. There is going to be five or six teams that have a good resume, resume 
that can vie for the spot in the playoffs. And there's going to be somebody that's mad and somebody that can't wait till we expand. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, we'll have to see, have to see as it goes. Just to wrap up the rapid round, uh, this weekend, the only way I can describe it, it was a treat. Uh, just a ton of fun games, lots of uh, really dramatic ends. We had comebacks. We had games that were back and forth, uh, swings of momentum, a really fun week. Uh, and now that the dust is starting to settle uh, and, and we've got, like Brian said at the beginning, we have data points on a lot of teams are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable with who's who, like Mark mentioned, uh, man, it, it just sets up for a fun stretch run. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to take it all in. Um, the big things that I really kind of took away from it is that, man, uh, an environment can change a game. Uh, Tennessee had a absolutely rocking stadium and Bama looked like they looked rattled. They look, they look shook uh, in a way that I haven't seen a Bama team you know, kind of get, let the moment be too, too big for them in, in a long time. Uh, we'll talk more about that game later, but really appreciate everyone kind of jumping in on the rapid round. Uh, let's go. Uh, first of all, let's talk through the win results update. We'll turn the time over to Mark to go ahead and give us the update. And I think we've got some news this time around, maybe a little bit of a different story. We do. We all knew that I would come around and, you know, stand on Victory's Hill one week. Uh, this is, you know, even a blind squirrel finds it. I go seven and three and I win the week. Uh, so feeling terrific about that. Actually feeling quite lucky. Air Force, Army, Utah State, Louisiana, all won for me this week. Uh, wow, what a rush. Um, to round it out, Steve takes second this week going five and three. Brian's four and two. And Corey, uh, in unusual form, goes two and four this week. Also had four buys. Uh, that's a bummer because the way that his teams were playing, he'd be two and eight this week. Uh, however, if we look at the season total, Corey still stands on the top. He's got 52 weeks or 52 wins through week seven. Brian's next at 46, closed the gap uh, a little bit this week. Now he's only sitting six back. And then Steve and I are fighting for last place. Steve's got 42 wins. I've got 39 wins, picking up a couple this week. Um, so feeling good. I, I was curious to start to see, and I now I'm not going to read too much into one week. But I lost a bunch of games early on, and I knew a lot of my hard games were my non-conference games for my uh, group of five teams who are then just going to get to eat the slop for the rest of the year. So I'm hoping seven and three tends to be a, uh, a more normal week instead of flirting with 500 every week like I've been doing. I guess I'll go and check in next on my team. Uh, yeah, felt okay about quite a few of these. Again, I, the name of the game for me is quarterbacks just getting I, I'm getting snake bit with injuries here uh I've, I've had injuries at quarterback for Texas A&M for Texas I think most notably I would say uh, and now NC State is without Devin Leary for the rest of the year brutal uh that that's rough we uh, we talked about Jacob Hayner at Fresno State they did get the W this last week but I don't I don't see a whole lot more uh coming from them We'll see. I, I feel okay about the team. It's, uh, I think we're heading into the, the stretch run. The one thing I will say is, I, I mentioned this right before we started recording, uh, Appalachian State, if you were to tell me they beat Texas A&M and scored 40 points in the fourth quarter against UNC, I would have guessed they were 5-1 and one at the worst and 6-0 and oh at the best. Uh, they are 3-3 three and three and currently in a dogfight with Georgia State as we record. So 
life is rough in the uh, in the Sun Belt. Yeah, Tennessee continues. To, I mean, I, I hit that on this most week, but continues to be a value pick for me at the tenth round. Um, it's funny because for me, it was oh, I'm going to take somebody in the SEC East, and more or less it was a coin flip between Kentucky and Tennessee, and I'm really happy with the with the choice that I landed on there. Um, but yeah, just one that it's great to get a win that you chalk down as a loss at the beginning of the season. Also, I, you know, I, I care about winning this thing and I'm only six games behind Corey. Yeah, it's not great, but I'm looking at our rosters and I go, okay, Ohio state's going to beat his Penn state team. So there's another one for me. Um, Cincinnati's going to beat his UCF team. So there's another one for me. Miami could beat Florida state. That would upset me very much. You know, that's one where I'm rooting against my, against my pick and for my, my Seminoles. Um, but I also have two more games uh, overall to play. I have 58 games left to play the most of anybody here. So I, I am looking optimistically at there's a chance I could close some of the gap here. However, one thing Corey did phenomenally is he avoided all of the Big 12. And I have two Big 12 teams that I don't know that they're going unscathed throughout the season uh, going forward. Oklahoma State losing to TCU wasn't one that I had had down. So we'll see how things can go. But I, I'm much more optimistic after this week. Corey's just given us a glimmer of hope, um, probably just playing with his food before he, you know, puts us away in week 10 or whatever, but uh, feeling like, like it's at least possible that a, a comeback could be made. Yeah. I was telling, I was talking to a, um, a friend and I said, or about this. And I said, I am glad that four of my teams are on buys because I'm literally having the worst weekend that I could possibly have. UCF played on Wednesday, right? And then Clemson and Florida State were played, so someone had to win. But everybody else that played lost for me. <laughs> um, and some of those I expected them, some of them I didn't. I did not expect the Coastal Carolina loss. To be honest, I, I did not expect UCL, USC to lose to Utah, even though Utah was favored. I thought USC had, had a good chance to win that one. Um, but their defense just finally let, let them down. Um, I do have a little bit of cannibalism coming up with Oregon UCLA next week, so I'm definitely picking up a loss there. Um, but I also have some more teams on the buys. We will see. Um, I, I agree with you, Brian. I've looked at that. I think I'm going to lose a lot of games against you head to head. Um, but fingers crossed it continues to play out in my favor. Um, one bad week. I told you guys it was only one week away from making it interesting. And welcome. I'm just glad I only had 16 playing this week rather than 10. <laughs> I, I will say coming up on the schedule, <clears throat> Boise State has, you know, the surging Utah State next week. I wouldn't don't look now, but they're on a two-game win streak, a team that I might thought might only get one win after they got smoked by Weber State earlier this year. Uh, sure, they played, I think, Colorado State this weekend, so maybe don't put too much stock in that win, but got the Aggies feeling good about themselves. All right. Thanks for the recap on the week, or the week results for our CFP win totals draft. Let's jump into the week that was. Uh, lots of big storylines. Let's start with the biggest of them all. Bama, Tennessee, in Neyland Stadium. Light up a cigar if you're a Vol fan or anyone else, I guess, if you care to. Um, really fun game. I loved it. I, okay, so I went to the BYU game, and I knew that I was going to be tempted. So I turned – my phone was on airplane mode for about 36 hours straight from about midday Saturday until – yeah, until, well, okay, maybe just 24 hours, but I, enough to kind of block out the noise. Now, the one problem I faced was like after BYU got absolutely, like their heads kicked in by Arkansas, 
as I'm leaving the stadium, the post games, like now let's go around the country and I can't avoid it. They're playing it over the stadium speakers. And I just heard, I didn't even hear the score. I just heard they were tied with like three minutes left. And I was like, okay, at least it's going to be worth my time to watch the game. Uh, got home and then ended up watching it. Really fun game. Uh, at one point it looked like Tennessee was going to run Alabama out of the stadium. And then Bama does what Bama does. They never blink. They don't flinch. They come back. They do their thing. Um, and I say that, and even then, you know, they had 17 penalties in that game. They really did a lot of things to help Tennessee. Now, I think a few of those calls were questionable. I know a lot of Bama fans were pretty salty on Twitter about the officiating, whatever. It's bad across the country, frankly. But a couple of things that I wanted to point out as, as takeaways from this game. Uh, number one, and you could say defense wins championships, but offense is the name of the game in college football nowadays. Uh, I think we all kind of noticed that as soon as Lane Kiffin was the offensive coordinator at Alabama, it signaled a kind of a shift in, in the mentality of even the upper echelon of the sport. Those that weren't willing to adapt are well, number one, they're either head coach at Texas A&M or they're no longer in the sport. And uh, so that's really where it takes me. The other thing I want to just take a, a minute and acknowledge, Josh Heupel, I don't think, who, show of hands, who thought that was a home run hire when he was named? Corey's sheepishly raising his hand. Go ahead, speak for yourself. Dude, honestly, like watching him at USC and, and the way he kind of ran that offense, it was just really, really impressive. Um, he he brings a different dynamic to the SEC, and so when he got hired, you were starting to start, like you said, you starting to see when Lincoln Kiffin became the uh, OC at Alabama. But when he got hired to be a head coach at Tennessee, I was like, oh, this will be interesting. A lot of people can crush that in the media, um, but he's proven that he's a a better coach, in my opinion, than he is a was a player, and he was a pretty damn good player. Yeah, I, well, I mean, no, I, I think hindsight, is, sure, is helpful. It's, it's totally interesting for me. I, I talked about this, I think, on the last on the last pod, maybe not. Uh, but I am excited when I see like coaches that are not born and bred and and sort of steeped in that SEC culture and SEC. You know, kind of that's where they've done all of their coaching. So I was excited when Brian Harson got hired at Auburn. Not necessarily that I thought he would be a smashing success, but it's just fun to see, okay, where can, can different ideologies exist in what I think is rightfully considered the best and, and toughest conference in the, in the nation. This was what I was nervous about. I was like, man, he had everything rolling for him at UCF. And then I mean, you, he didn't really build off of Scott Frost's success. He got worse and worse as time went on. So I was kind of like, oh, they they needed, I mean, it, Tennessee was kind of a mess at the, at, at the time. And so I felt like they kind of got who they could get because they tried to hire several other people and the, the fan base stood in the way. And now you realize like, oh, like, hey, this guy can can coach. And now with the help of NIL, they're, really recruiting at a super, super high level. So we'll see. But I, I think that that's a really fun one to see uh, moving forward. It looks like he's got it rolling there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to, to, to put your statement to the test. You know, I, I still think defense wins championships. I think when you give up six, you know, six receptions to one guy and five of them go for touchdowns, what do you have, 200 yards? 
I'm trying I'm trying to pull his stats right now. Uh, the Tennessee wideout, but it's like that's not defense. So, you know, when you talk about defense wins championships, yeah, well, there was no defense in this game. That's why there was a thousand yards, and it's you don't give up, you know, that many big plays by playing defense. I think you can still have a good defense and play in a high scoring game, but you should be limiting the explosive plays like that uh, more often. Um, yeah, Hyatt had a 36 yard touchdown, an 11 yard touchdown, uh, uh, a 60 yard touchdown, a 78 yard touchdown, and then a 13 yard touchdown. Um, so I, I don't, I don't necessarily know that it's, it's all an offensive game. Um, at least if you, if you want to win the title, uh, you're going to have to be able to, you know, stop 60 yard touchdowns. I don't, I don't, I don't, think that the team that wins the title this year is going to give up a bunch of 60 yard touchdowns in the uh in the championship game and walk away yeah i'm in the same boat with you mark i have to see just thinking of last year's national championship game it seemed like georgia had a kind of a more bama of 10 years ago um sort of style not necessarily offensively but defensively um and bama had you know adopted this what we've come to know is like, oh, they just crank out wide receivers who can produce huge because they have this explosive offense um, that really, yeah, started with the Lane Kiffin, Steve Sarkeesian, uh, Bama teams. But it's it's still to me to, to be determined because Georgia last year, I think, was old school Bama, and that's what Bama got beat by. Um, so it'll be interesting when that comes to, I don't know, comes to a head when we see Tennessee versus Georgia and see whether – whether that can be contained at all. Cause this Georgia defense still looks really good at times is, you know, giving up silly plays here and there, but has to, I, I kind of give them a pass because they've never been in actual danger. You know, like it's, it's hard to bring your 100% when there's actually no threat of, of getting beat. Um, or at least not, not in my eyes. Um, so, and, and then every time they've needed to stop, I feel like they've gotten it. So that's something that has been, yeah, will be seen, but gosh, having a great offense does help quite a quite a lot. Um, Hendon Hooker, he's just you look at these quarterbacks, and I think about him and Dorian Thompson Robinson. We have them; they're super talented on their own, but they're also just perfect fits. They they are in perfect understanding with their coaching, with their offensive play calling, and then their ability, uh, Hendon Hooker's ability to to freelance when things go wrong. It's like if you blow up a play, but you don't blow it up enough, that's still a win for Tennessee. And that is so debilitating as a defense to have to go up against that time and time again where you won the first battle in the play, but the play's not over. Um, and it ends up with an eight-yard run out of bounds at the quarterback. That is so rough to deal with. I, I remember back in the day watching, um, this is when Russell Wilson, back before he was terrible at the Broncos, but when he was at NC State before he even made it to Wisconsin, um, and we watched, I'd watch Florida State play NC State. And the thing that killed you is he just never had a negative play. You could do anything you want. You could get as many hands on him. He was going to throw the ball away. He was going to get three yards. It was really hard to get them off schedule. I think Hendon Hooker has that same kind of ability where he knows when to stay in the pocket. He knows when to leave it. Um, and gosh, I don't know if there's a better deep ball thrower in the, in the NCAA right now. He he really finds his guys. He sees the space and and puts it out there where they can get it. So very very potent thing to watch against against a talented defense um particularly a talented defensive front um and then you know kudos to the balls like i i didn't see it coming i was hoping i would see some sort of competition 
I did not expect 52 points on Alabama. I did not expect them to be ripping out, you know, field goal posts and and partying all all weekend. But really, really excited for the for the Vols and then for the landscape of college football. Like they've done us all a huge favor. I love it so much. It's always it's fun, particularly in college football, to watch elite quarterbacks. Um, you you touched on it there, uh, Brian. But you know, in the college game, you get such a such a spread of you know what sort of talent you have at the QB position. I remember when watching this game and just thinking like, man, what a blessing to have like these quarterbacks on your team. Like every pass is on the money. They don't miss throws. They don't miss open throws ever, you know? And like, just to have that in your pocket, particularly in the college game where it's like, you know, most of the weeks we're going to go play against somebody. They're going to miss a few throws that they needed to make. And we might win a football game just because their quarterback can't make the throws our quarterback can. And, and, on the flip side, Stephen, you touched on earlier this year when you don't have a quarterback. NC State, that's a bad football team. That went from a good football team to a bad football team now without you know Devin Leary as a QB because that QB can't move the football. Um, and so just you know it, w- w- it was a, a show uh, and a a treat to watch for football fans to watch the Bryce Young and Hen Hooker go back and forth. For me, I first got started off. I give give props to Tennessee. They did a Decent job of scheming up, scheming open wide receivers, um, and hitting the plays when they were available. When when those wide receivers were wide open because of blown coverages, um, I'll give them that. But to be honest, I wasn't overly impressed with Tennessee in my um, in my view. I was watching the game. I was they hit wide open passes as they should. Um, there were tons of open opportunities. Um, what what I came away impressed was, and with anything more than anything, is Bryce Young is the best football player on that entire football field. Um, If you did not have Bryce Young in that game, that game should easily be 63 to 21. Like he, if you watch that game and, and watch how often he gets blitz, how often he gets ran for, he runs for his life. It is unreal. Like you sit there and say, Tennessee, like they, they threw the ball 31 yards, 31 times for, for like what, 200, 385 yards or something like that. Averaging 12.4 yards, uh, an attempt they only completed 20 passes. So you're looking at like, if you're talking about yards per completion, we're looking at like 15, 16, 17 yards. I can't do the math off my my head. Whereas Bryce Young, I think they averaged, he threw the ball, I think 52 times and they averaged 6.6 yards of completion. He was being blitzed on 42% of the passing downs, expected passing downs. And I think if you look overall, the entire game, the blitz percentage is even higher than that. That boy is running for his life time and time again and escaping time and time again. And he's the reason Alabama was in this game at all. I love the uh, – I know, Stephen, you want in here and you want a rebuttal, but I'm not young yet. I love the, the play calling by Tennessee on that and showing us that, that this Alabama team, this is maybe a way to attack this Alabama team. Um, so give the defense props there. But, like, this would not have been a game if it hadn't been for Bryce Young and then occasionally Jameer Gibbs. Um, like, in reality, I came away by far from going – Bryce Young is the best football player in the country. Sorry. No rebuttal. Uh, 100% just to dovetail with that. And I think he turned the escapability up in the pocket to like 13. It was nuts. I, mean, I, I always knew he was elusive. I, I felt like he looked way faster in that game than I'd ever seen him. And it's probably because he never had to. He's been, you know, he's been for the most part, Fortunate to be to be behind an Alabama offensive line that 
up until this year has been really, really solid. There's some, maybe some inexperience and some, maybe not quite the quality of offensive linemen that we're accustomed to seeing at Alabama this year. Man, he looked so quick. That short area quickness was insane from Bryce Young. So I, that was one of the most entertaining things. Like he's going to keep the game alive. He's going to keep every single play alive, much like we talked about with just quarterbacks that can change the game like that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested to see how teams attack Alabama from here on out because if I'm a team, I kind of want to implement this Tennessee attack to kind of hopefully make Alabama struggle because it did put them on their heels. But the fact that he was able to make so many plays on that, if my offense isn't able to keep pace, then I don't still don't have a chance to win the game. Because, I mean, you still had an offense that put up, what, 52 points to win the game? I mean, Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if the strategy you want is run the defense that gave up 49 points. But uh, or, <laughs> I don't know that there's anything else you can do. Because it's funny you, you mentioned that. I told you I, I had this thought watching the game. It was on a Bryce Young throw. It was, it was everything you described. Scramble drill. He's panicked. He rolls out, finds a guy 13 yards down the field, right on the sideline, and it is a dart. And I was like, man, what a throw. That guy is so good. On defense for that. The, the one other person I'll shout out from Alabama, because it, it is Bryce Young, head and shoulders above the rest, Jameer Gibbs, then significantly the second. Um, Cameron Latu, I hadn't been impressed with up to this point in the season. Really, really strong game. Um, you know, c- coming into this game had 11 receptions in the season. Um, and with that frame, with the, the talent there, just, just something that, you know, shouldn't be the case, but he was, you know, I felt like when Alabama needed a reception in this game, I knew that's where it was headed. Um, it was either that or it's going to be some way to get, you know, get the ball and get his hands in space. Um, and, and he stepped up big. And so I, that was good to see. It's, it's a very talented player and huge frame, the huge matchup problem. I think about him, you know, I, Michael Mayer is the, the best tight end in, in the NCAA, but I think in a similar vein, uh, Cameron Latu um, has that same sort of matchup issue that, that you see on a down-to-down basis. We're not going to let that slide. Brock Bowers is definitely the best tight end in the, in the nation. Oh. So, so I'm not going to let that one slide. Nonetheless, oh. Yeah, Dalton Kincaid might have something to say about that. That guy doesn't make it. killed USC. That's one game. Good for him. Yeah, he was unguardable. We can get into that more later, but that guy was awesome. He wasn't the best tight end on his team until Keithy got injured, so thanks. But next, um, but yeah, why don't we go ahead and, and transition to that game, Utah and USC in Salt Lake City. This one was a fun one, too. I just love, my favorite thing about it was that Kyle Whittingham, you're seeing the evolution of a coach, I think. You're seeing him understand that the game's being played differently now, both in terms of offensively how it's being played, and they've opened up the playbook quite a bit, while maintaining some of that physical and, and run-first mentality that they've had. Uh, but it's really, really powerful when you're able to put the run game, combine it with a, an aggressive pass game, and, and being able to take the ball downfield. My big thing that I love is that he's now being much more aggressive. We saw him go for it on a fourth and two from about the seven yard line against BYU last year. And he got stuffed and they lost the game as a result, not as a result of that specific play, but I was surprised. Number one, that he went for it. He was the right decision to go for it. Don't get me wrong, but I just didn't think he would because he's usually been kind of more on the conservative side. 
And I thought maybe this changes and reinforces to him that philosophy of I, I need to, you know, kick, kick field goals, play great defense and, and win games in the low twenties. No, he's, uh, he's still, still doing, uh, doing what uh, I think a lot of statisticians would say is the right move uh, and going for it. Uh, that go for two to win the game. If you're following us on Twitter, I did kind of a quick week recap with some tweets. And the one gift that I used to describe this game is that Utah said to USC uh, in going for two that this ends now uh, from the office. If you'll remember, there's a scene where a car alarm goes off in the office and Hank, the security guard, goes out and he goes, is that the skateboarders again? And uh, he's looking out there and he just says, this ends now, uh, as if that's been a problem in the office parking lot. Anyway, that's kind of the attitude that I think that Utah took on and they had to. They were down 14 multiple times during the game and always persevered. I really thought this was a pretty impressive performance from a team that just was just coming off of a pretty bad loss in Los Angeles to UCLA. They head home to defend their home turf against the other LA team, the other Big Ten trader, as we might want to call them. And, and, and they took, took their lumps. They, they gave up some points early, but they didn't didn't stop. And, uh, you know, I guess it brings up a question. Was it Utah's offense or was it USC's defense? That was the, uh, what well, was the problem or the, uh, or, or the solution, depending on which side of the, uh, which sideline you're on. Honestly, I'm, I'm stunned that Utah's defense, which was pretty talented coming in here, gave us up as much, many, many points as it did. Um, I think, you nailed it on the head and the fact that like they needed to end it there. They had, they scored like right towards the end of the game. Um, I was like 48 seconds left in the game or something like that. Um, and then they also have like the fans kind of on their side and, and the fact that he's like, all right, we're going to go, go for this. Like um, I kind of just love that mentality. I'm impressed by it. Um, I'd like to see, see these two teams play again if they can. Yeah, it's possible. That's that's the exciting thing about opening up the uh, the the championship games. The best two. Uh, yeah, I, I'd be down to watch round two. That would be fun. Uh, I totally agree with you, Corey. I think it's one of those things that I mean, when you mentioned the defense, like if you think about this, like USC went on the road to Oregon State and really struggled offensively. So. Uh, I, I don't know. It's it's great that Utah pulled out a win. I wonder what that means for them going forward, uh, in terms of just being able to to, to defend because that may get, maybe gives some of these other teams that have uh, you know they have remaining on their schedule. I, I don't know if anyone really kind of matches up with them stylistically quite like USC does, but it was a little bit surprising that that score got as as high as it as it ended up being. Yeah, I think if USC doesn't shore up some things defensively, like they, they might look good still the rest of the season, except for against UCLA. Look at their schedule. They, they are one of the teams where I feel like I have an okay understanding of what they are now that they've played Utah, but you know, playing Cal playing um, who is Arizona who have they coming up are not really teams that are going to, I think, particularly test them or, or reveal more about them. I think, and to some of that is to their their own detriment. They did have like the early scare against Oregon State, but 
I think they might feel the the pain of not quite having elevated competition higher or earlier on in the season and throughout the season. Um, because I think there's a good chance that they're, you know, get back um, drinking their own Kool-Aid high on their own, I don't know, ability to beat up on the, on the lesser teams in the conference and then get smacked by UCLA again later in the year. Um, I would love to watch a rematch of this game. I'm just not over optimistic in USC's ability to do that. But that said, they really only have one game to win. Um, the rest should be, should be gimmies. Um, plus, plus Notre Dame who, you know, that's not conference, but that's another one to, to pad the schedule and, and look really good if you're trying to make a playoff push. Yeah, in all honesty, I think if the, the way the schedules are set up, it favors Oregon to get the chance to go to the title game um, pretty easily just because they have the South to face. Um, but, yeah, like it, it's kind of interesting to me. Sorry, the North to face, my bad. The North to face, but the North is just, in my opinion, a much weaker conference than the South or division than the South. So it's weird that you play these games still in your division, but you take the best two teams. I don't know. Yeah, I was a little surprised that they didn't revamp the schedule as well in conjunction with that. I imagine moving forward that'll be the case, but it'll also get simpler because you have two less teams to worry about. Mark, did you have any thoughts on Utah, USC? I will throw out at you, though. Don Kincaid leads in tight end touchdowns, tight end receiving yards, so put some respect on that boy's name. I also looked at the Brock Bowers, Michael Mayer numbers, and it's like, oh, Michael Mayer is having a way better season than Brock Bowers. Brock Bowers have... is having an awful season. He doesn't pass the eye test. Awful. But yeah. but he doesn't oh. pass the eye test? No. The eye test compared to Bowers. Oh, oh Michael. What Brian's saying is Michael saying... Mayer is the most boring football player to watch. Everything is an eight-yard reception that he gets tackled on, but he's got unbelievable hands, but his stats are way better. Yeah, what I'm saying is like when you watch Bowers, you're like, oh, that's that's a freak athlete. Like that's that's a crazy tight end. But Mayer's the one who's got the numbers. <laughs> Mayer's on an offense where he's the only thing. Uh, Bowers yeah. isn't on an offense, but that that's that seems more relevant when you're person number one to stop. Like, unless you guys fight over tight ends, because I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving right along. Let's do some kind of quicker responses. Uh, TCU, Oklahoma State. Uh, again, this one I, I didn't actually catch. I haven't, I haven't seen this. I just was watching the score updates uh, or, or saw some of the score updates in the stadium at BYU. And so saw Oklahoma State jump out to a lead. I thought, dang it, that Oklahoma State prediction of them being toward the bottom of the Big 12 is going to be a problem for me. It still may be, but TCU doing me a big solid, fighting back, winning in overtime. Again, I don't have a ton of uh, insight on this game as I haven't really seen it. I've only seen a handful of the highlights, but just really love the way TCU is finding ways to win games, whether it's via blow, via blowout, comeback. They are a team that is to be reckoned with in the Big 12. Anyone else have a, have a quick thought or note on that game? Yeah, I watched the beginning of this game and at the end I switched in between because I thought Oklahoma State's kind of seized control um, but really kind of a, a tale of two halves sort of game where Oklahoma State came out and Spencer Sanders looked the way that he had for most of the season where you know had a pretty good control anytime they had the ball they were explosive he had a you know a long passing touchdown they had a running touchdown uh, and then when I went back to look at the film of what happened in the second half it was the Spencer Sanders that was you know the the dubious part of last year's offense um, where there are missed throws or, or poor decisions made. And by all means, this, it wasn't a 
terrible performance. You know, he, he had an interception, but it wasn't like he gave the game away, but he didn't uh, keep that offense running the way that we'd seen all the way up, not only in this game, but through, through the season up to this point. Um, and it's the first time we've seen him kind of regress to what was last year, Spencer Sanders. So, you know, you hope for, for Oklahoma state's sake, for his own sake, that he can overcome those things that doesn't become a, a confidence thing for him. And I don't think it will be, he's a player that plays with a lot of swagger, but um, on the flip side, uh, Duggan is it Max Duggan. Who's the quarterback at TCU. It just looks like his team's willing to go. To, it's one of those things where it's like, you can see the leadership palpable on the field. Um, he makes big plays, but also the excitement for him over the littlest thing that he does from his teammates shows you what he means to them. Um, and that, that is a, something that can keep a, a team like TCU or a, any team fighting hard through the end of the game um, would have been easy at a few points to kind of roll over uh, in this game. It never got away from TCU by any means, but you know, late in the third quarter, you're down 14. That's a, that's a lot to overcome. Uh, and they completely dominated the fourth quarter. Um, and then ultimately get it done in second over or yeah, second overtime. It's close, you know, it, this game really still could have gone either way because really Oklahoma state did have a great first half and you look at that first um, overtime and you go, okay, it doesn't look like other teams had any trouble moving the ball. They might just keep scoring on each other. And this might be decided by, you know, a two point conversion play as the new, the new overtime rules work. Um, but kudos to TCU for fighting through and, uh, for Oklahoma State's sake, you you hope Spencer Sanders Spencer Sanders can return to what the rest of the season's form has been. It, this game to me was about TCU, and, and last week was the same thing. Just finishing a football game, right? They go into the fourth quarter down fourteen, and it's a it's a tale of two different teams. Um, TCU gets two touchdowns on, on there uh, in the fourth quarter. I think Oklahoma State their last like five drives are like punt, 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 pick, punt. Like, that's a team that doesn't know how to finish a football game. TCU finished last week against uh, against Kansas. They finished again this week. Um, impressive win. When I, when I said at the round, you know, in our rapid round, we're starting to find out who teams are. That was one of the teams that jumped out to me. That's like TCU is a tough team, and they're going to play you for 60 minutes and longer if they have to. Awesome. awesome. Thanks for the thoughts. Let's let's go ahead and move on to another game that we wanted to take a minute to talk about. Michigan Penn State got the weekend kicked off, uh, and man, this one was well informative. Let's put it that way. And uh, Corey, I know you had some thoughts on this game. Go ahead and get, share your opinion, share your observations. I, I think we very very definitively show that there are two top teams in the in the Big Ten, and then there are our tier teams, but they aren't close. And I mean, at one point in time in, uh, in the third quarter, this was a close game. It was 24-17. But the only reason it was 24-17 was because Penn State had a, a pick six that made the game a little bit closer. And um, Michigan slammed the door shut in that, to end this game. Um, this is going to be a fun team to watch. And they're going to be fun to watch Ohio State. They might have the firepower to finally beat Ohio State. I'm excited for that game. Other than that, you don't need to pay attention to the Big Ten. Literally, that's the only two games that matter for the rest of the season, in my opinion. I'll I agree with Corey. The Penn State piece, it was interesting. I and I said at the last, at the end of last uh, last episode that Michigan was finally going to play a good team, but I think that's all we knew about Penn State is they're a good football team. Uh, I think we found out they're definitely not great. I mean, if you looked at who they played, 
the best team they played was Purdue, and they won that game on, in the last minute. So basically, they're they're the same as Purdue. It's hard to get a read on some of these uh, Big Ten teams because that just doesn't feel like exactly what Corey said. There's not a lot of talent outside the – not a lot of uh, elite talent outside of Michigan and Ohio, Ohio State. So then they kind of beat up on each other. And they're like, well, what do we have here? Penn State beat a bad Auburn team. Um, you know, they're not killing anybody they're playing. One thing I'll add on this one, Michigan's running attack is really strong. And I don't know what it is if you can stop it. Um, they had two 150-yard backs in this game, um, actually 166-plus yard backs in this game. Uh, Blake Corum had – I'm going off the top of my head. I want to say it was 28 carries. It was an insane amount of carries and did not slow down throughout the whole game. He's got over 900 yards already on the season. If anybody has a as a hope of beating Michigan, I think it's forcing McCarthy to be the one through the air. I don't think it's a bad quarterback by any means, but if you let those running backs get any room, uh, Edwards and and Corum can both can both tear you up pretty quick. More interesting factoid that since James Franklin has joined or has been head coach at Penn State, they are now two and fourteen against top ten foes. That's over against I think top five. I think that's correct. I think that's correct. Did you hear his quote before the game? Uh, he told the, he told his team, you don't come to Penn State to play in these games. You come to Penn State to win in these games. Uh, I, I think that's a lie. Yeah. You come to play in them. You come to collect your participation trophy. Do you pull, uh, like, do you do you fire this guy in hopes that you can get a guy that can get you over the hump? Like, kind of like Texas A&M did with someone. Not that someone wasn't at this level, He, but someone was a good coach. Um but clearly Franklin's not showing he can get over the hump. Oh boy. Oh boy. Mark just put urban Meyer in the chat. Absolutely not. Uh, I think, didn't they just sign a new contract for, for James Franklin? I don't know if they really have a, a whole lot of, a whole lot of flexibility, at, at least at the head position, but something's got to change, right? Like he's a great recruiter bringing in a lot of talent. They, they do great things in the NFL. They just don't do great things in state college. Well, and and it would be one thing if, you know, they looked like beating Michigan in this game. You know, if it was something where it's just like we're we're really close to beating these teams. But the the problem has been, it's been clear when you've played these teams who's the better team. It's been definitive, and that's the you know that's the gap that he's being paid so handsomely to bridge. Steve, I checked the details. Seven million a year for ten years signed last year. So. Signed through twenty thirty. I wonder if these uh yeah, the, these guaranteed contracts that we're starting to see in these really large contracts, I I think you're gonna start seeing a lot of buyers remorse. AM, you could already tell that they're talking about the return on investment with Jimbo Fisher's contract. Michigan State, wolf, Penn State, I don't know. There, there's a handful of these that are not looking super sharp. Uh, and really shrewd business decisions. So uh, at some point, an AD is going to get the ax for uh, uh, a wild contract and a lot of money owed to a coach to not coach football. We'll move on. We'll quickly summarize a couple more games. Uh, Mississippi State versus Kentucky. Turns out Will Levis makes all the difference. He's the straw that stirs the drink in Lexington. I'm going to disagree with you. I feel like running the ball makes all the difference. If you look at the stats... It is like 48 rushes for 235 yards to 10 rushes for 22 yards. They rushed the ball like crazy and shut them up, controlled the clock, controlled the game. 
Um, yes, I think Levis is, is a is the, is a key to them, but knowing that you can throw, but man, they just decide to lean on that rush. Sure, Dan. My, my point is that without Levis in the game, you don't have the defense can totally sell out against the run. Chris Rodriguez is a good back, but he can't do it by himself. Uh, and that that's more what I was driving at than than him necessarily taking over the game. So it, 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 glad you brought that in. It's an important distinction. They've got some, they've got some talent. I, I again, I, I think we'd all be feeling a whole lot better about ourselves in the in the win totals draft, except Brian, if he had picked Kentucky instead of Tennessee. Um, so we'll see what Tennessee ends up kind of bringing to the table in the back uh, back half of the season. But uh, we'll see how many more games will Levis is. I I honestly think he might be one that's like you know what I may shut her down for the NFL draft because he's got so much draft buzz and. Tennessee, I, I don't, I'm, or not Tennessee, excuse me, Kentucky. I'm not sure what they're playing for at this point. I think, I think definitely not winning your division. I don't know. That's speculation on my end, but uh, we'll see. You're playing for seven wins, right? Isn't that what happens? He gets plus another year on his contract. If he gets I, don't seven wins. Stoops, I don't know what Stoops is playing for. I don't know what you're playing for if you're one of those players. Another one that I wanted to spend just a hot minute on. Did any of y'all watch the Baylor-West Virginia game on Thursday night? Oh, what a game. It was so much fun. Uh, I, I tweeted out from our account, like, I think this may send my wife into, into early labor. This game gets wild in the fourth quarter. I'm going to read off a couple of things that happened just kind of heading into, like, the, the final 10 minutes or so. West Virginia gets the ball with nine minutes left. They drive and score a touchdown on six plays. That changes the game. So West Virginia is up 40 to 37. Baylor then drives the ball down to the, let's see, they're down at the 19 and they throw a pick. And then immediately the next play, that pick looks like, okay, you're up three. You have the ball three minutes and 19 seconds. Oh, oh excuse me. I got that wrong. Hang on. Yeah, you throw an interception. Yeah, three minutes and 19 seconds left. West Virginia has the ball, the lead. you got to get a couple first downs, and you've won the game. They throw a pick right back on the very first play. So they throw an interception. Baylor starts with the ball on the 26th. They go no four, four plays, zero yards, kick a field goal. After that, so we're tied 40 to 40. And after that, there's a one-minute drive that kicks end up in a game-winning kick, leaving only a couple of minutes on, on the clock. But, man, it, it was just crazy that there was a fumble, a touchdown, a pick, a pick, a field goal, a field goal. Like, it just ended up, like, it, it didn't, you couldn't figure out who wanted to win the game. My wife was like, this is giving me anxiety. I, I have to leave. I can't watch this. She was like, what, what is happening? Uh, and it was just a really fun game to watch against, again, two teams that are not currently in Big 12 title contention, really. Maybe Baylor's on the outside looking in. But, uh, yeah, I don't think West Virginia is going to be doing much, but like just a fun back and forth game for a college football fan that kind of eats up some of the sloppiness. Like sometimes it just makes the game more entertaining. I thought that was a really fun one. We wanted to take a few more minutes to just talk through some plays. I had one sort of nominee for stupidest play of the game. I don't know the player's name, and I'm not going to call him out on it, but Bama had a player that tried to field a punt that had been abandoned by the returner. So McKinstry, Kool-Aid McKinstry decides, I'm not 
yeah, I'm not fielding this. On the, I believe the second hop, another Bama player decides, oh, this is my shot to make a play and tries to go and field the punt and advance it. Oh, that was a that was a killer one early in that game for Bama. Obviously, they had opportunities to overcome that later in the game, but you'd really like to have that decision back if you're Nick Saban. Yeah, that's you know, there's a great clip of him yelling at that player uh, on the sideline. That took a year off his life, at least. A part of me wonders if that player just had his view obscured from someone because Kool-Aid McKinstry doesn't run away from the the kick. He kind of runs by where it's got or the punt by where it's going to land. I wonder if he thought it actually hit him because it lands fairly close. But if you have a clear view, it's very obvious that McKinstry didn't touch it and wasn't going to. And so there's part of me that thinks like he at some point had his you know vision obscured and thought, oh my gosh, this guy's accidentally touched this punt and now we've got to try and recover it. I hope for his sake, that's what it was, but that's a, a tough one to, to walk back to the sideline after. It, it does take a weird sideways hop, which you don't normally see from a punt ball. And that's why I think as a player, I probably thought would have thought, oh, that must have hit somebody. I just don't think he, I don't think he did not see that. If you look at him, it's not, he's not trying to be urgent. He's not diving on the ball. He's trying to pick it up and run with that thing. And he's being pretty casual about it. So I, I don't know if I buy that. I know they said that on the broadcast. I was like, I just, I don't know if that passes the smell test. If you see two of his other players walk by the punt, uh, even if he thinks McKinstry doesn't, Terry and Arnold goes by, puts his hands up like I didn't touch it. And then he tries to pick it up. He doesn't dive on it. He could have dove on the ball, but he tries to pick it up on the run, ends up muffing it, Tennessee ball, Tennessee touchdown, what a player two later. Yeah, I just think it's possible he thought he was the one being heads up saying, no, that did touch Kool-Aid and I am going for it. And yeah, maybe I'm Cam Newton. I'm not great at recovering fumbles, but that's how I chose to try and pick it up. There's a couple other interesting plays that I'll, I'll bring up this week. Minnesota versus Illinois. Illinois wins that game 26 to 12 in the game. Quarterback Tanner Morgan is running um, and he crosses for the first down and he's diving to go down and an Illinois player dives in to punch the ball out and punches Tanner Morgan right in the side of the head and sends him out of the game. It was a really just odd play. Uh, he does not return back to the game and he leaves with what they called an upper body injury. So yeah, we saw it's his head. We, we, we saw what the upper body injury uh, at least appeared to be. Um, so, you know, I, I haven't checked his, uh, injury status, uh, in a couple days. Um, but, but really weird play. I've never seen somebody punched in the helmet and bad enough that it sent him out. Uh, might want to check that helmet. One other play that I'll bring out, uh, was in the, at the end of the USC Utah game. This is one of the wildest plays I've ever seen, particularly from an officiating standpoint. So USC gets the ball back with, uh 48 seconds left um they they struggled to to move the ball so they're sitting on like on their own 20 or so with about 18 20 to 18 seconds left kid williams snaps the ball blitz is pretty tough he gets flushed right and hurls a ball downfield that ball gets picked off uh but a flag is thrown looks like it's going to be pass interference the Utah player has a pretty long run back. They, he, he runs another five seconds and, and the officiating on the play would be that the, the clock runs while that run backs out. And then, you know, they'll announce the flag and whatever the penalty is at the end of the run back. 
So Utah picks the ball off. They're running it back. Uh, USC, a USC player pushes the, the defensive back out of bounds and then throws him to the ground four yards out of bounds. So clearly a, a late hit. The refs swallow their flag. They get together to reconvene to figure out where the clock should be stopped because it looked like there was a little clock confusion. And as they pull up the replay, I didn't notice this real time, but the the game clock stops when that ball is picked off. I think they think one of the two, two guys end up on the ground, and I think they think one of them has probably picked that off, uh, best I can assume. They stop the clock for like four seconds. And so when he runs out of bounds real time, I think there's six seconds left on the clock, maybe eight. Uh, but the clock didn't run for four of those seconds. So I'm expecting them to come back out to the field and say, there's two seconds left in the game, also a pass interference call. The official, after they finish circling up, come out and say, pass interference, 15-yard penalty. Also, an inadvertent whistle was blown for a timeout with 13 seconds left in the game. Somebody called a timeout from the sideline while the ball was alive also if you listen to the broadcast you don't hear a whistle um so i don't know what but they come out and give usc a full 13 seconds plus the penalty plus not the out of bounds penalty utah comes out in a way better situation they should have been should have been offsetting penalties utah's now or usc's now 80 yards from their uh, you know from the end zone and they've got two seconds left to run one more play instead they get 15 yards and 11 seconds from the refs it was the craziest play luckily uh utah comes out with the win um they, they did what they had to do on the next two plays to to not let that derail the whole game yeah to me this was i, I couldn't believe the the answer that they came up with at the end cause it all just looked like oh there's just going to be they're going to get 15 yards and way less time and they get away with that that very blatant late hit that's right in front of a referee um and then the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard is that they blew the whistle in the middle of the play and that the you know because they did that the clock doesn't doesn't keep going um despite the fact that we all agree that that's not when the play ended like you're not going to say that he didn't intercept that ball like that's not nobody's going to argue that that play was still alive well and if you're watching if you watch all 22 players nobody acts like a whistle stops you know they're they're chasing down this interception yeah there should have been a ton of late hits if there was if there was a whistle because everybody's still blocking and that guy certainly got tackled so like regardless how far it was out of bounds j- just uh, i don't know an officiating nightmare and really i don't i'm tough to i don't know how i'd look myself in the mirror <laughs> just you know it's it just just a hard one to live with because it's like I, is that the right call like it, if you did blow the whistle is that what you're actually supposed to do because one I, again like you said nobody's hearing a whistle nobody's stopping playing but if that's the right thing to do like i don't know if it if it's not like then i would definitely hide it you know <laughs> i'd be like no i didn't blow my whistle and uh there's two seconds left on the clock that's the solution but like it, it's it looks terrible in live in live time and then they reconvene and make themselves look way worse and it's just so embarrassing to watch and you know i'm pretty happy that didn't affect the result and cause controversy but couldn't believe what I was watching as it, as it was going down. Yeah, it was a great week in college football. Some wild things happened, some really fun things, some, as we just covered, very questionable things happened. Uh, let's let's go ahead and, and move ahead to our game turned when segment. Corey, I believe you had the game turned when. I will turn the time over to you. 
Yeah, the game turned when Kyle Whittingham decided he was going to be the man and make a brilliant call to go for it on, go for go for the win and not the tie, um, and put the ball put the trust of the game in Cam Rising's uh, hands. Great call, way to end the game, way to finish it, and really st- put a stamp on saying who was a better team that night. Pretty simple this week. You play to win the game. Rest in peace, Herm Edwards' career. Anyway, yeah, I believe lead block on that play was Dalton Kincaid too. So just because Keith is out for the year. Steve, we want to hear top ten tight ends next week if we can start some uh, Dalton Kincaid we, slander going. Are, are we doing this? I, not slander. <laughs> I'm just saying he's a fine tight end. He also was number two on their depth chart, and then there's no comeback for that, Mark. Aren't aren't you the guy that says the preseason you know stuff doesn't matter? Thought that was you. Stuff sure doesn't matter, but yeah, Jackson Smith and the Jigba is also the best wide receiver on Ohio State's team. It doesn't matter that he hasn't played. Like, all right, I'll, I'll settle. Dalton Kincaid's the second best tight end in the country to his teammate. That's fine. So, so you're giving me you you got twelve personnel and you want Dalton Kincaid and Brant Keithy instead of Brock Bowers and Michael Mayer. I'll take it. You can have you can have them. Don't get me wrong. No disrespect to him, but I, I feel like I've got draft picks one and two, and you're taking three and four, and maybe even a little bit further down from that because we haven't even talked about Darnell Washington. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, the weekend that is coming, honestly, this one looks like a weekend that may be a little bit slim pickings. Uh, for me, it's one of those where it's like, man, this is why Hermione Granger had a time turner so she could attend classes at the same time because it looks like that 130 or the 330 Eastern, I should say, slate looks like the meatiest part of the schedule. But let's go ahead and talk about a couple of these games. I'm going to steal the one that I think is obviously the best. Uh, that Oregon UCLA game to me is the it is the must watch TV of the of the weekend. Here we're going to find out who has the inside track when it comes to the Pac-12 championship game. Got a little bit of information on that with Utah and USC. This is another one that's going to really shape the the Pac-12 race. And so I'm excited to see what happens in Eugene. Yeah, I'll take the uh, the Texas-Oklahoma State game. Uh, any any chance to watch Quinn Ewers play is a, you know, is a good day. Um, that will help curve or shape the the rest of the big 12 um season though there is an arguably mark what time is that game you play yeah 330 all of them all of them uh there there is a a more relevant game to the pac 12 or to the pack yikes to the big big 12 um conference race later i think that's the uh is that an eight o'clock kick it's a late kick uh where Kansas State plays TCU, yeah, eight o'clock. Um, so that that'll be another one I am tuning into. But uh, I think I'll I'll have on that three thirty slate UCLA Oregon on one green and, and Texas Oklahoma State uh, on the next. All right, and the game I'm excited to see is Clemson Syracuse. You have two undefeated teams here, um, Clemson and, and Syracuse. Clemson, you know, the cream of the crop of the of the ACC. Syracuse, somebody who people didn't expect this team to be. Um, who they are. Um, granted, they face a, a Devin Leary-less NC State, but they still had 
a great uh, – NC State still has a really good defense, and they, they did well against the defense minus the two turnovers. And if they didn't have the two turnovers, it would have been an even bigger blow than it was, 24-9. Not huge, but better than it was. Um, looking back at the Clemson game, Clemson played Florida State. Florida State averaged 6.1 yards per carry in that game. And Syracuse has, a, in my opinion, a pro- potentially a better running team. Um, and so I'm interested to see what happens with this. If 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 your trainer doesn't make it as, as many mistakes as he made in the last game, I've got Syracuse winning this game. I know it's a 13 and a half point favorite for Clemson. I think Syracuse, with Robert and I's offense, which I've told you guys I'm a big fan of, beat Clemson. I think Clemson covers, and I think Clemson covers easily. I do not think Syracuse is good, and I might have to eat crow in four weeks when uh... – FSU rolls it up, uh, you know, play Syracuse, and if we lose that game, but Syracuse has not played anybody. Purdue will make a second cameo this week for another last-second loss, um, which they Syracuse beat them in the final minute in a game that we covered uh, extensively in an earlier podcast. Other than that, they smoked Louisville week one. They beat UConn. They beat Purdue in the last minute. Virginia, they beat by two. Wagner, they killed. Uh, and then they beat a team without an offense, Devin Leary's NC State, uh, or the Devin Leary list, NC State. So I hope you're right, Corey. I will be rooting for Dare Trader. I just don't think they're very good. I'm on the Syracuse side of of this, as far as the spread goes. Um, I don't know. I picked them to win. But if they can keep Clemson from being electric early, um, they don't have ways to score points in a, in a hurry, um, necessarily. And so I think if there's possible if they have to play from behind, it becomes really, really tall task to, to run back. This is Syracuse play from behind. Really, really tall task to, to come back and, and make a game. But if they can stick in it through a quarter and a half, I think they can make this game very uncomfortable down the stretch for Clemson. Um, I especially think about this Clemson D-line is unbelievably talented, but also like should have done a lot better against Florida State. Um, <laughs> there, there were plays where you're like okay i don't know why brian brizzy's getting blocked on this you know like well, why we the, the the team that i know most intimately in the ncaa is florida state and it's because i'm a huge fan and i know the quality of some of our offensive linemen and lack of quality of some of our offensive linemen um i think you know it's great for them to have the perhaps a wake-up call against florida state of okay we've got to do some things better but if they don't Syracuse has a good good running attack um and I, yeah I think they 13 points is I think a little high for this especially considering last week's three point spread um from Florida State which I, I thought was a little a little wild I'm, I'm with Corey on this one not to the extent that I think they'll win but I I think they can keep it to a one score or, or I should say a single digit um single digit win for Clemson the other game I'm looking forward to is the Kansas Baylor game Kansas fans, I told you you're not winning again for the rest of the season. So far, it's been the case. Baylor's favored by nine. Just just look forward to another loss and just enjoy the fact that you won five games to start the season. So, I've done this a couple times, uh, but I've got two SEC games on, on the slate that I'm looking at. One, I talked about Ole Miss on the top, at the top of the show. They've got LSU. Kayshawn Booty is finally looking like he's engaged, um, which – from the early parts of the season, he looked not himself whatsoever. And now it looks like he's, you know, able and, and willing to do some damage along with neighbors and, a, you know, a really talented wide receiver core. Um, LSU is favored by two over the number two team in the country as an unranked team. So that should tell you something about, you know, 
the 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 voters might be a little bit fooled, but Vegas tends to have an okay idea of of where the strength is for each team. Um, I, I think that's a you know a good chance to get a big staple win early on for Brian Kelly. Um, it's a gift that it's a top ten one in my opinion, but they they're gonna have to bring their best because Lane Kiffin. <laughs> He's as good as getting up for a game uh, as any and and stopping uh, what he gets going on offense is, is not an, an easy task. And the other one is just Mississippi State, Alabama. Um, Alabama has had close games this year and they've just lost one. And it doesn't get, you know, necessarily, uh, I mean, it gets easier. Don't get me wrong. Mississippi State's an easier opponent than Tennessee. Um, but it's not a complete nobody. It's a team that can play. Um, and particularly when you look at the holes that you saw in the secondary, Mississippi State's an air raid team. Um, Mike Leach, that's where he wants to go. He wants to wants to beat you down the field. It, it's just kind of a, you know, on, on top of what was a tough week last week, can they clean up their act? Can they make sure that they get their penalties back to like a normal Nick Saban discipline team? Because um, I think that alone probably gets them, <laughs> gets them win against, you know, Tennessee or anyone else. But still, they, they've shown the ability to be threatened throughout the season. And I'd like to see, like to see another week of it. Awesome. Well, that will be show for the week. We appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for all the support and hope we all get to see you on the socials. Feel free to engage with us. We've got more game day content. Mark talked about the cool uniforms at BYU. I was actually able to see those like up close and personal due to some connections we have within that program. So some cool stuff on, on the socials. Feel free to give us a follow or a shout. And we hope to see you on the other side of another great weekend of college football. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of the CFB Paint Podcast. We're dropping new episodes every week. Be sure to rate us five stars on any and every service where you listen to the pod. And if you feel so inclined, let your friends know about us. As always, thanks, Mom, for giving birth to us. And to all the rest of our listeners, we'll see you next week.